Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Smell Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boateng. This week, please join me in a conversation with Joshna Maharaj, chef, author, activist, and acquired anosmic. Joshna and I chat about her experiences having anosmia and working as a chef, her new debut novel, Take Back the Tray, revolutionizing food in hospitals, schools, and other institutions, which was recently published on May 5th of this year, and much more. Joshna was born in South Africa, but grew up and currently lives in Toronto, Canada. She suffered with nasal congestion problems for a long time and then discovered both nasal polyps and a deviated septum, which she had surgery to correct. She decided to become a chef after spending a year in an Indian ashram. Joshna shared that she's not a restaurant chef. She works in community food security, and her current work focuses on rebuilding food systems in public institutions. She also has her own podcast called Hot Plate, which I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes, so go and check it out. Our interview was recorded on May 3rd, 2020. Let's jump in and listen to the interview now. Hi, Joshna. Welcome to the Smell Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm so well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on today. So let's go ahead and get started. Can you tell us all a little bit about yourself? Where are you from and where do you live now? Yes. Um, So I currently live in Toronto, uh, in Canada. Um, I've lived here for like uh, 43 of my 44 years. Originally, I was born in South Africa. And I, I, my, I have Indian heritage, but uh, Canadian uh, for the vast, vast majority of my life. Wow, that's cool. I've actually never been to Canada. Ah! I know. I need to get up there. <laughs> more, more opportunity for you to come visit. Yes, as soon as, as, soon as the walls come down. Yes. Right. So can you share with us all, what is your anosmia story? Yes, it is. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's for, I mean, listen, for me, I think it's super interesting. But basically... Uh, about six years or so ago is when I noticed that I was that I had stopped smelling and I had had persistent nasal congestion in a way that we just could not deal with, right? I tried all kinds of natural diet stuff and herbs and acupuncture and all kinds of things and nothing seemed to work, right? Except for a pretty solid decongestant habit to just sort of blow my nostrils open, right? Mm-hmm. And finally, I did, I had an, um, I had a uh, CAT scan done of my sinuses uh, because my sleep, I was going to see a sleep doctor and he really wanted to know what was going on with my breathing. And we discovered that my sinuses were opaque, like they were stuck full right Mm. so then and that was like I be honest I was so delighted that we finally had an answer for what was going on right and why I could never seem to not be congested so anyhow I had some surgery to clear out there and we we discovered that my sinuses were full of polyps so we had the surgery to clear out the polyps and my septum was taking a right-hand turn over one nostril, which sort of explains that blockage, right? Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Uh, just over a year ago, I had this surgery, and it was incredible to just finally have two open lanes of traffic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that was really a delight. But I noted that I still couldn't smell, right? And so, um, and and really, I mean, the biggest thing for me to say about that is considering the fact that I am a chef, uh, the fact that I couldn't smell felt like a, a major liability, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, I inst- my, my instinctive response 
was to keep it a secret and hide yeah. it, not tell anybody, because I was really afraid that my reputation, everything would kind of come tumbling down a little bit, right? Uh, and so it was my dirty little secret that I kept now for years. I kept it uh, because I think first the anosmia was pretty intermittent. It was only maybe about four or five years ago where I really understood the fact that I cannot actually smell anything. And that that showed up to me as like burning things on the stove. Right. I started doing that more and more. Um, and then the what really uh, sealed the deal was a note from my building management uh, about the smell of an organic spin that needed to go out mm. that I had no, I had no idea about how stinky, right. And they were like concerned that something was raw, you know, cause an organic spin has a good solid stink when it needs to go out. Uh, and that really told, I was like, Oh no, this is a serious thing now. I really, I really can't smell this. And that, that really sunk in. So anyhow, that's the story. It's, um, thankfully sort of last summer sometime I, uh, I had a resurgence. I had two weeks of smelling. It just sort of showed up. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is, oh my God, it was a dream. And like, it was such a gift. I was on vacation in India. And if you can believe it, it was such a beautiful moment. I literally, the smell returned just as I was putting a mango to my mouth. Oh, wow. It was amazing, right? And I ate this mango. And of course, right, we all know the story about the, how the Indian mangoes are so wonderful. But I, I, I ate it and I was like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> this is like, I've never, I'm like, Indian mangoes really are, you know? But I mean, yes, the Indian mango is good. But the truth is, it's because I got, there's like high floral notes in a, in a fresh, good, you know, ripe local at that point mango. And I was catching all of it and it was, it was overwhelming, I will say. Uh, but that was, I mean, that only lasted for a couple of weeks. And it's been a bit in and out ever since, but it has been a pretty incredible journey to learn about the fact that this exists and that there is such a, a robust community. That's been pretty awesome, too. Yeah, there definitely is. So you mentioned in there that you're a chef, and that was yes. one thing that I was really interested in speaking with you about mm. in more detail. A chef who has an osmia, that's a unique story. Indeed. So can you tell us a little bit about your career as a chef? How did yes. you decide that you wanted to be a chef and how did you get involved in that arena? Right. Uh, my decision to become a chef came quite beautifully. Uh, it's a very romantic story about me spending a year living in India, actually. I was living in the mountains in a little ashram. And I, I had graduated from university, but I, my degree is in religious studies and women's studies. So really, there's not whole, there's not much of a job at the end of that, right? Uh, <laughs> and so my parents, thankfully, they, you know, I mean, we're cool with it. And they just go and enjoy yourself. And I loved it. I loved all of it. But I made this deal with them that they would be cool with me going to spend a year to live in the mountains and go for walks and eat mangoes. And I would come home with a plan. Uh, what I didn't know was that the plan was going to be that I was going to be a chef. I didn't. I had no idea until I got roped into working in the kitchen just in this very simple place, right? Ashram is essentially a Hindu equivalent of a monastery. And they, they were sort of short-staffed and whatever and needed help. And the ladies uh, dragged me into the kitchen mostly because they were very concerned about who my insane parents were who just shipped me off to the other side of the world and didn't worry about 
finding me a husband, doing all these, you know, I was 24, so time was ticking, all these nonsense things. Oh, of course. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. And you could see, they were just like, she's supposed to be so, like, you know what I mean, modern and whatever from Canada, yet these insane parents have clearly, you know what I mean, neglected a really important responsibility. Right. Uh, Super funny. Anyway, something magical happened in there, right, in this process. uh, And the, the context was such that in a Hindu context, the kitchen is a sacred space. And so we had to, we'd take our shoes off at the door and we'd sit cross-legged on the floor and chop vegetables in our laps. And it was amazing. I just, I fell in love with the entire thing and sent a proclamation home to my parents that I was to be a chef and that this was the plan. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds so lovely and tidy. They were not excited at all about this plan uh, and offered a su- sufficient pushback. Uh, but anyhow, it happened. I did it. I came home. I went to culinary school. Uh, and I guess the most important message to send out is the fact that I'm not a restaurant chef. That has never really been my my passion and my excitement. I work in community food security and uh, most recently have done work uh, rebuilding food systems in public institutions. So of uh, this very grassroots community angle on our food and our food system has been the thing that's much more interesting. And and when you think about it, I suppose it makes more sense when you discover that my love of cooking showed up in this like rural ashram <laughs> kitchen in the mountains, right? It's sort of like that connection makes a little bit more sense. It was never about crisp whites and stainless steel counters and that sort of thing for me. It's just like, such a fantastic story just to listen to I, it sounds idyllic like you're in the mountains it really, it really is lovely it really it's it's uh it's amazing every time i tell it i'm grateful that it's so nice yeah and so and one other thing that you mentioned in there is that you work in the communities so yes. a question that i had for you is you actually just published a book and i think it came out this month correct it's coming out on tuesday may 5th Okay, so that's fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about your book? It's called Take Back the Tray. What is that about and how can listeners purchase that if they're interested? Wonderful. Thanks for asking. So Take Back the Tray, it is a book uh, and it essentially is an account of four major institutional sort of overhaul projects that I have done. There really isn't very much conversation about how we rebuild the food systems in our public institutions. And it's definitely like the least sexy part of the food revolution as it would be, right? I think it's also because it's the messiest. But uh, I think perhaps the, the most important thing that I can say is that the real problem with institutional food is not actually the food. It is about a culture and an attitude that does not prioritize food. And the considering how dismal the food is in so many of these circumstances, we're talking about schools, hospitals. And while I haven't worked in a prison, I make space for prisons in the conversation because I think that that is an important piece. Um, It's generally terrible and it doesn't have to be, right? There people throw up a lot of obstacles, but it is only because nobody with any real power cares enough to do anything differently. And to me, that is not a good enough answer. Uh, And so I really think that there's a role for chefs to play in spaces like this outside of restaurants to um, support, I mean, our food system is in such a vulnerable, perilous state, right? It, it, it kind of already was. The impact of the pandemic that we're living through right now has really just accelerated the vulnerability and, and revealed a lot of cracks. So um, I really want to put, position chefs as leaders and advocates to be able to, um, to engage and, and, and hopefully encourage some social change. 
And you oh, mentioned and a little... Sorry, you can get it. Um, indie bookstores, Indigo. Um, there is, I will give you a link perhaps for the end. There is a link for a distributor that's uh, distributing it in the U.S. It's a bit tricky now because people can't just run into a bookshop and buy the thing. But we will even on my website, joshnamaharaj.com, we, I will have lists of all of the indie stores that are supplying and obviously shipping books out. That's fantastic. Thank I'm you. actually originally from Idaho. Um, so <laughs> my favorite indie bookstore is called Rediscovered Books. It's in Boise. Cool. All right. Thanks. Shout out to them. That's nice. <laughs> right. So you mentioned you started off your cooking career in an ashram. You had like this moment of I'm going to be a chef. Yes. You came back, you went to culinary school, and now your work is really focused in the community and changing these institutions. So what was the leap or how did you get from I'm going into culinary school, I've graduated now into your current like field of the institutional changes? Like okay. what led you to that versus going to work in a restaurant? Good question. Okay, so the, the middle piece there was a, a job that I very sort of serendipitously connected to early in my career. Uh, and it's an or it's a community food center. It's a nonprofit organization here in Toronto called The Stop. And I was hired to cook lunches twice a week, right? It was very simple, just cook some lunches for folks. But that really, it was a bit of a risk, right? Because I was a young chef didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I had a whole lot of ideas about what I didn't want to do, but you know, that's not always very helpful. And so I took a leap and I took this job in nonprofit, uh, a bit concerned that I might be surrendering some culinary dreams, but it felt good and it felt worthwhile to figure out if I could create a career for myself as a chef in this sort of different context, right? And what what developed and what grew from there was the loveliest surprise because my elevated food skills really allowed me to do some better things with the very humble ingredients that we had because it was all like food, donated food ingredients that went into the lunches that I cooked, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, what I, what I discovered was that I was able to actually attempt to break the cycle a little bit and put scratch made wholesome food on these plates. And, and for, for most of the people who received these meals, that lunch and that plate of food was the only meal that they ate that day. Mm. And that really, I, I really, that really spurned me to start really thinking about ways we could put the best, the best food that we could get our hands on, right. In, in this really sort of limited resource context, but it, like simple things, for example, instead of taking a bottled salad dressing off of the donation truck, which just is really full of sort of synthetic things, essentially, I invested in a bottle of red wine vinegar and canola oil and some Dijon mustard and taught all of our volunteers to just make a simple vinaigrette that would work on everything. But it was real, you know, one of the one of the things we find in these contexts is that people who who subsist on social assistance and you know and use food banks uh that's the, the there's no perishable food involved there it's all very non-perishable uh so uh, being a chef in that context really allowed us to change the story you know and to to put different food on those plates and that was super super exciting for me and so that was sort of the anchor right uh, and the overarching philosophy of this organization is that access to good food is a basic human right, which mm. I believe very strongly is the truth. Uh, and I loved the idea that a chef could actually 
uh, advocate for this and support this somehow, right? It's somehow there was a disconnect for me that there weren't more chefs in this conversation, that this was about uh, social workers, you know what I mean? And a really sort of social community context, but chefs seemed outside and I wanted to try and bridge that gap. Uh, so once we had some success here, I was itching to see what was happening in our public institutions and I got a call beautifully from a hospital who was looking for some help in how to actually start making change. It was a very well-timed thing. That's so cool. That's a good story. Earlier when you were speaking, you were telling me a little bit about how I believe last year when you were back in India on your vacation that you had a moment where you actually had you recovered your sense of smell. I did. So just to clarify for myself and for everyone listening, after that point, have you lost it again or do you yes. still have the ability to smell? No. Uh, so it's sort of August of last year. I had it for two weeks, one week in India, one week back home here. Uh, and then it was gone again. And what and was that like for you to recover it and then lose it again? It was, uh, the the to get it back was, honestly confusing I didn't know what was happening for a long time like for a good couple of days I knew that I felt really sensorily overloaded but I didn't understand that it was because I was smelling Mm. uh right and then it all kicked in I was like oh now okay and that was amazing but I also uh when I got home and really I will tell you the smell showed up part way in my trip to India and it was such a bizarre experience because I hadn't been to India for 20 years before that, right? Mm. And it was such a bizarre experience because uh, I'm not sure if you've connected to this, but a lot of the story about travel to India is that the first thing that happens is you smell it. <laughs> you, you know, India India hits your nose before anything else happens. And it was so weird to be there and not smell any of that, Right. right. There's so much opportunity, kerosene, diesel, animals, food, fruit, you know what I mean? All kinds of things. And I, none of it. Anyway, when I was at home, I remember just baking a batch of cookies and I, I, I marveled at the fact that my nose smelled it and that I could tell that the cookies were done. What was really bizarro for me was that I realized that I had no uh, emotional feeling about the smell of the cookies. Mm. Right. I pulled them out of the oven and I confirmed. I was like, yes, they're done. And my nose told me that that was so. But I was not like, oh, that smells so good. Right. Maybe right? you were protecting yeah. yourself from it. Maybe, maybe. That's a sweet thought. Uh, I, uh, I didn't. I was curious. And I was like, huh, I just have a very sort of objective identification of this thing. Uh, and then another scenario happened where I woke up. I um, I was on the yoga mat. Right. And I and I was and I realized something was happening and I didn't know what, but I was like, oh, I'm smelling. But I couldn't tell you what I was smelling. Right. I just know it was like my mind was just rolling through options like a like a slot machine. You know what I mean? And not landing anywhere. Uh, And that was weird. And then simultaneously, I had another morning where I woke up and all I could smell was coffee. Had you made any coffee yet? No, there was no coffee anywhere. I left the house. I went out for a walk everywhere. It was like coffee was somehow just stuck in my nose and like a, like a, like a wire had tripped, you know, essentially. Yeah. So it was when, weird. when you were just speaking, you were talking about how you were like, your senses were overloaded. And I can uh, imagine that because I've had acquired anosmia for about 10 years now. Oh, wow. Okay. And I, I can't imagine getting it back. 
because I feel like that would be so overwhelming. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the second time, so that was sort of August and then it left. And then I started smell training in sort of mid-January. It's when I discovered that it was a thing. Uh, and I went for it because I started uh, learning uh, a bit more about the memory connections. And I started mm-hmm. getting really panicky about what what long-term impacts are being, you know, would, would now exist as a result of five or six years of not really, of not smelling anything. Yeah, it's a really uh, good question. Right? As, is my long-term memory now somehow just going to be uh, muted a little bit because I don't, you know, not as vivid as the memories of the other years outside? I'm not, I don't really know. But yeah. I got a little freaked out. So I was like, look, let's try and do something here if there's an option. And so it was quite amazing that smell returned. I probably had it for about three weeks this time. That's right. great. It has since left. Um, but this time was awesome. It was really, uh, it was really sharp. And so I'm, I have my jars, which have eucalyptus, lemon, clove, and rose, sort of the classic lineup there. Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating, though, was that I was clearly smelling, and I understood that, but all of the things I was smelling were distortions. Parasmia. Right there, yes. Everything. Yeah. And I couldn't smell, notably, I couldn't smell any high notes or any sweetness. Right? So my, so my eucalyptus, I just smelled like woodiness and green. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, eucalyptus has that kind of minty astringency on the top, but I had I got none of that. The lemon was just sour. I just smelled sourness. No brightness, no, you know, none of that. It was really, and the rose was just sort of dusty. It sounds really, it sounds like it's working to an extent for you. So that's pretty exciting. Have you been sticking with the smell training? I have. I know that it's a long-term effort, so I've stuck with it. Yeah. And I, I, I also, it also sounds like this intermittent play is part of the game. Yep. Right. It's, it also sounds like this, but I will say I like it is still always very arresting when I when because just the past couple of days I've caught whiffs of things, which has been really sort of exciting. And it is always it always gives me pause. Right. It's always like, wait, what's happening? What's yeah. going on? And then I have to go through the paces to be like, ah, I've smelled something. That's what this is. Now it's like, what is that? What am I? You know, there's so many just to see the 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 rebuild that is required on so many of these connections is really kind of awesome <laughs> it feels a bit daunting but at the same time uh, i'm delighted that that i had the chance to even just observe an experiment like this yeah i very rarely will get like the sense of something in mm-hmm. my nose but i don't know what it is and i can't describe it right um, it's so wild right yeah. it's yeah it's very intermittent and it's sometimes like sometimes I think it may be gasoline or exhaust or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I'll try to describe it to my husband and, I, and I'll ask him like, is there a smell right here in the air? And he doesn't smell it. So I think it's just happening in my brain right. every yes. once in a while. Yes. So yes. Our oh, it's it's fascinating. Such, it is such a curious thing. And, and actually you are the, you are the first other anosmic person who I've spoken to who has some sort of thoughtfulness about it. That's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. I'm glad yeah. that, I, that you that's have really met cool. someone else who has not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a bizarre <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and real, and like, it was only through the course of, I don't know, I guess me getting brave enough to write about the fact that this is the secret that I've been keeping all this time. When I, when I um, started the smell training, 
uh, to be very honest with you, the creation of the jars was just so cute that I could not resist the Instagram post. But then I realized I'd have to explain what this was all about. Uh, So I went for it. And it was really amazing to just hear from people that that this is as common a thing and everybody else. And there are many, many people who have been cooking delicious food without smelling any of it. Uh, Yeah. And, And that's not it's not nearly the liability that I was convinced that it was. I've had um, multiple guests on the show before who are also people who run like food blogs and they yeah. have an osmia. So okay. I just love speaking with everybody who has a good relationship with food who also has an osmia. Yeah, because, well, it's, yeah. Go ahead, please. Oh, because you're still, you can still make delicious and amazing food and you don't have to have a sense of smell to do that. Yeah. And I think that that's such a yeah. new idea for most people. Yes, it really is. Because obviously, uh, nobody has questioned why I decided to keep this a secret, right? Everybody's like, oh yeah, for sure, I get why you keep that a secret, right? I, I yeah. Which is just telling me that they themselves would perhaps have pause to trust a, a chef who couldn't smell. Uh, yeah. But one, I mean, one of the lovely uh, bits of wisdom that has emerged from there for me is that I'm guessing, because I have not been grossly over-seasoning my food, which is what you would expect, right? If, if I'm not able to smell, everything would just be really amped. Um, mm-hmm. And beautifully, that's not what has been happening. And nobody can tell that this is. Occasionally, I will have uh, one of my chef pals taste some, you know, salt and things like that. But it hasn't been a big deal. And I've been really delighted because I think that that means that I have enough of a, I have a strong enough intuition around cooking. Yeah. That my other senses kicked in, right? And whatever memory I had of how this thing should taste was has been sort of strong enough to guide me through it. Which, um, which I'm, it's very reassuring, right? As someone who, who, for whom this is my job, it's wonderful to see that in a pinch when things get tested, that I do have a really solid foundation of connection to cooking and how that all works. This is precisely, I think, what these folks were talking about. You know what you're doing still. It's, yes, it's exactly. Just like maybe you could equate it to having a blindfold on or something but you yes. would still still understand the process mm-hmm. um, obviously someone would need to guide you a little bit but you still have an idea of what you're doing because that's you've it. done it so much before that's it the awareness and is still there and and the memory of what it's like to do it is still really strong of course yeah so another question that i have for you mm-hmm. it concerns your relationship with food Yes. How has your relationship with food and eating changed since you've become an osmic? I believe my, I think for sure I uh, tend, my instinct now is to cook food with bigger flavors, right? And which, I mean, beautifully, I am Indian and so I come from that tradition. And so big flavor is in abundance, but I, I don't, because I don't catch subtle flavor. Right. right. I don't, I can't, if something is just like lightly herb scented, I will miss it completely. Uh, and so my cooking definitely is, is big. It's like sourness and brightness and heat and, you know, whatever brining, you know, whatever else it has to be. I for sure have, have amped up the intensity of the flavor in my food. That is, and even in the things that I bake, right. I'm always putting like, giant flavors in there and people are always like wow I didn't know that this was because I need I need things to, to the my flavors have to work harder to get to me I suppose you know yeah that makes a lot of sense to me 
Another question for you is when smell comes up in daily life, do yeah. you take the time to explain to people that you can't smell now that you've essentially come out as an anosmic? You know what? I don't. I don't. It is not. Um, I, one of your questions I saw, and perhaps this is where you're leading, was whether or not I self-identify as anybody uh, that has a disability or, you know, is it, that this is an issue. And I don't at all. It is not a thought that I should. And that might just be holdover thoughts about the fact that I have to keep this a secret. But it was only when I read your question that I even considered the idea that there might be some accommodation or understanding, you know, because there obviously would be for somebody who couldn't see or, you know what I mean, or, or any yeah. any use or hear, but I, I don't even consider it. Uh, I really don't. And, and you've, you've made me think about the, the scenarios in which I perhaps could and that I could talk about it, but I still am really very quiet about it, save the few scenarios where someone's like, oh my God, look at this amazing thing, smell it. And they like put a thing under my nose. Right. Right. And then, and now I will tell you, I don't lie anymore. <laughs> right. I've definitely stopped because I used to fake it. Right. And because I'm like in the chef world, there's all wine people and they're always giving you all this business. Uh, and so I would lie throughout all of that because I just didn't want to get into it. And it felt, you know, there was shame and secrets. Now I just, it's only when someone pushes something under my nose that I will confess and I'll say, I'm sorry, I can't smell. That's not going to work. For, that's not going to work. I'm not going to be any help to you. Yeah. Right. That's and, actually one, one of my favorite questions to ask all guests who come on the show is the question about self-identification of having a disability. There's yeah. so many different answers to the question, which is why I love asking. Responding. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, some is, people think of it as a disability. Some people yeah. don't. Um, I think it's just fantastic to kind of hear the thought processes Me behind too. it. And it really, I mean, out of all of our senses, it really is one that is relatively easy to live without. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's a big thing to say because I mean, real safety things, I can't smell gas. I can't, you know what I mean? Gas leaks, all of that. There's the danger there. I can't, I couldn't smell fire. Right. Uh, and the organic spin. And really, and, and I'd actually love to know what your experience is of this. Of late, I have really started connecting to the distance that actually does exist between me and the world as a result of this. I hadn't, I yeah. had put it together that this was, it was the smelling, but I definitely had the feeling of it, right? Because I for sure have reduced, I mean, pre-lockdown, uh, I reduced the amount of socializing that I did. I didn't really go out to events and restaurants at uh, very much at all, which for me is a big enough deal because there's constantly sort of the opportunity and invitation to do that in the industry, right? And I don't, uh, I really do. And, and I I remember when I was, I was on vacation uh, in Croatia for Christmas with my family and watched all the other members of my family take these big inhales when we walked past a bakery or when we were on the water by the sea or right. And I really was like, man, I have now less information about this place than they do, mm -hmm. right? I am not really getting the full the full flavor of Croatia, this you know slice of Croatia that we were in, and that that the emotional impact of that has really started to land and, and hit me. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of mental health concerns for people who have anosmia. Yeah. And I'm a big advocate of, of speaking about that. It's definitely been a struggle for me. Mm. I think now that I'm 10 years in, for the most part, I'm able to understand it. I've 
come to terms with the fact that I have anosmia, that I'm not going to get a sense of smell back, most likely. You know, there's miracles. But for the most part, I'm, like, I don't know if the word content is correct, but I'm okay. I suppose, or you've settled into it, right? Yeah, so for me, that's okay. But, like, at the very beginning, it was definitely a roller coaster of emotions. And I I spent a solid number of years just ignoring it completely and not looking at it because it was too painful. Yeah, I get that for sure. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are at different different areas of their own, like, figuring out what this means to them and how they mm-hmm. feel about it and whether they're ready to speak about it. Right. Um, so my goal with the podcast is actually, it's quite therapeutic to me, to be honest. Nice, that's <laughs> okay. That's great. To talk to people who have anosmia and other smell disorders because I want to give space for people to just share their own stories and... I literally started the podcast because I wish it would have existed for me when I first became an osmic. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I have really been um, grateful for a community of people who understand what this is. Because uh, it's a very, it's a very bizarro experience. And and I still like my people who like my closest, dearest pals are still like, really? Yeah. You sure? Nothing? You can't really? You can't smell this. And like we've been in places where there's been like a horrible sense or like some baby diaper or some really intense thing like that. Uh And everybody else in the room is like coughing and their faces are inside their shirts and that sort of thing. Right. And they're like, really, Josh, nothing. And I'm like, what are you? I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. You almost have to like constantly prove that you're telling the truth. Yes. And people are just like, no, you, you, there's no way you can't smell this. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I, re- I really can't. <laughs> I really can't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I think, and I've had conversations with people before about this too. I think that those comments come from a place of, of not comprehending. Yes, like it's I the, so. I, the idea yes. of not having a sense of smell is so foreign to people that yeah. they just can't wrap their heads around it. Yes. Um, uh, so I've come to, come to that point where I'm like, okay, it's not, they're not being mean. They just no, don't I, understand. Yeah. And it's just, it's unbelievable, right? They yeah. can't really even imagine it. And, uh, and it's, it's sweet. Uh, but it's, uh, it is, it is definitely a consistent thing. I'm constantly like, nope, nothing. I got nothing. Yeah. yeah so for my next question, I want to change gears a little bit with you. Yeah. When we were communicating beforehand via email, you had mentioned to me that you actually have a podcast of your own. So can you share with us a little bit about that? What is your podcast called? Yes, thanks for asking. It is called, the podcast is called The Hot Plate, and it's easily findable or wherever you get your podcasts. And essentially, uh, the tagline we've given it is that it is a post-foodie podcast, and I share it with a colleague and friend of mine, Mirella Amato. Mirella is a master Cicerone and has a lot of deep knowledge and wisdom around uh, beer, beer making, beer culture, as well as just as sensory training. Uh, And then I obviously uh, am a chef and have that food background. But we really started this because both of us had the idea that there were conversations about food and drink that, that we really wanted to have that we didn't see in other podcasts or sort of other medium. And so we started this, which essentially is a conversation between the two of us about things that we've seen uh, that are interesting, anchored, of course, in the context of food and drink. Awesome. So I'll make sure that I include, include a link to that. And you said it's called Thanks. The Hot Plate? It's called Hot Plate, yes. Very cool. 
So my next question for you is what would you like people who do not have anosmia to know about what it's like for you having it? I, um, I actually, you know, it's funny. This is a great question, but I, I actually think the most important thing that people who don't have this know is in fact how, how real a disability it is. Right. This I, I will honestly say that the, the truth of that is still a newish thing for me because it is something I've just blocked out and pushed away from considering. But the reason I know this is because when I was with my family and this was happening, my brother's girlfriend caught on to what was going on. And so she started describing the scenario for me. Right. And as she was smelling things, she would tell me she would like, Joshua, I smells like. Uh, bread or we get into a place and it's like it smells like there's a pig roasting or there mm -hmm. you know what and I and it changed so much right it really changed and even she understood that she had somehow brought me closer to experiencing a thing right she really had a sense of how far away I was and I think that both the people who have it I think um, obviously we all have a different relationship with it but there seems to be this tendency to kind of not talk about it mm -hmm. right and then for people who don't have it they really are shrouded with a lot of disbelief about it's the reality of the thing and so I think that it needs to be it needs to be understood perhaps not as uh, prohibitive I suppose as blindness or deafness uh, right or other sort of hearing impairments, but that it really is a thing, and it really does stand in the way and limits your uh, your ability to engage with the world. It's not just like I think some like strangely, I think some people imagine that we that we somehow chose it or that we caused it or you know or something mm -hmm. like that because it's just it is a really sort of crazy thing to it's very quiet too, right? You don't really unless you're talking, you have really no idea that it's happening. What a beautiful thing for her to do for you, to oh, describe the smells. Honestly, I was really, I, I gave her extra hugs uh, in appreciation because she really understood what was going on. And even the bad stuff, she'd be like, whoa, I think somebody peed here. Yeah. <laughs> right? It was like she gave me everything, which was super helpful. And it really, it really, uh, it brought me closer to connecting to where we were at any given moment. My mom has done that for me previously. That's yeah. a new habit that she has as well. And it just makes you feel so understood that you kind of want to yes. cry. I really do. I'm with you, right? Because I have an experience of being with somebody who is visually impaired. And I will say things like, you got three steps in front of you, right? Uh, so yeah. you know, steps up or this is curving to the right or, you know, whatever else it is. And so it. I feel like it is a similar thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that yeah. little bit of kindness really was wonderful. That's beautiful. So you, I think maybe I know your answer, but if you could have a sense of smell again, would you want one? Yes, definitely I would. There are, it is, I, there are things that are disappointing that I can't smell. Uh, right. And now that I've been so open about all of it, that just I live the reality of that much more. And one of the things that really hit me with a lot of sadness is that I that my people's babies, they're brand new babies. Right. And that brand new baby smell is a dreamy thing. And mm -hmm. I remember holding this little guy and stuffing my nose in, you know, under his chin. Uh, and I was really heartbroken that I couldn't get this, you know, get the nice smell of him. Um, or to be able 
to walk into somebody's house who's having me over for dinner and get, you know, consumed with the niceness. I would love to do that again. Yeah, me too. I think that would be lovely. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Oh, it's, I think, I mean, this is this whole, the process is really quite new for me and but I'm a very eager student as is perhaps obvious at this point uh, but one of the things that I feel is important to share is to don't underestimate it right if you are somebody who has suspected that this is a thing uh, but you don't really know what's going on reach out or try and find like the, the lovely folks absent is a website that I used I'm sure you're connected or familiar with all of that yeah um, right don't I understand the urge to push it away and not talk about it and not want to deal with it. But I will tell you that my life has become better and richer now that I am talking about it. Right. I think that keeping that working so hard to keep that secret pushed me further away from people in a, in a way that I didn't even realize. Yeah. It's very comforting as, as we talked about, it's very comforting to just connect with other people who yes. understand you yes completely without even you having to explain a thing totally totally i've been super grateful for community in this context and how can listeners connect with you on social media mm, you can find me uh twitter facebook instagram at joshna maharaj uh and soon enough you can also uh get information about the book at at take back the trade i'm looking forward to reading your book it sounds right? fascinating uh i'm really excited about it it's, it's amazing that it, we're this close uh i dreamed about it exactly two years ago and so it's tremendous that we are here now uh and and that i literally as i'm talking to you i have envelopes stuffed full of books to go out to my i had i did a kickstarter to uh, to fund the process to write the thing and it's wonderful to be able to ship these off to the post office and sort of you know uh deliver on that promise that's fantastic well thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today i've really enjoyed talking to you me as well katie thanks so much for reaching out Thank you to Joshna for coming on the podcast and sharing her story with all of us. Please make sure that you go and look for her book called Take Back the Tray, Revolutionizing Food in Hospitals, Schools, and Other Institutions, which you can buy from independent booksellers online at bookshop.org. Don't forget that Joshna also has her own podcast called Hot Plate, which you can check out anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I'll include a link in the show notes. You can find Joshna on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Joshna Maharaj, and you can find her book on social media at Take Back the Tray. If you'd like to ask me any questions or provide any feedback about an episode, you can click on the link in the episode notes to send me a voice message on Anchor. It's super easy to do, and I may include it in a future episode. If you have someone in mind that you think I should speak with, please share that with me too. You can also email me at thesmellpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at The Smell Podcast and visit online at thesmellpodcast.com. I'm always interested in sharing listener stories. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show if you listen using iTunes. Reviews are helpful because they allow others to find the podcast. Finally, if you would like to financially support the podcast, you can do so by clicking on the link in the episode description. I appreciate your support. And a huge shout out to everyone who currently contributes monthly to the show, because your generosity is what makes the podcast possible. Until next time, have a great day and stay safe and healthy.